Maggie Grout is the founder and CEO of Thinking Huts, a nonprofit organization which aims to increase global access to education by working with communities to build 3D printed schools where they are needed most. Currently, she is working in Madagascar. Her company uses innovative technology to provide students with a place where they can learn in comfort and safety, thereby empowering them to better face the challenges of the future. She started her company at the age of 15. Maggie Grout, welcome to the creative process. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about your journey to founding Thinking Hats and what made you realize the importance of the project. I think a lot of it goes back to my origin story. I was adopted from China when I was quite young and I come from a rural village that was quite poor. So I think just having that as a reflection as I grew up, I knew how important education was and I definitely had more opportunities being able to grow up in the U.S. and having access to education, which allowed me to learn how I could bring all these resources and partners together to eventually achieve what we have with Thinking Huts. And then I would say the catalyst for Thinking Huts was at 15. I was in my dad's office discussing where I hope the future would go and also seeing how we could combine technology with philanthropic solutions. And then that sort of started everything else. And now I'm, I'm here today. Well, it's not the traditional educational model or what we think of as schools. Just explain a little bit about the construction process of these thinking huts and the challenging circumstances you faced on the ground to getting them realized. Yeah, so we use architectural scale 3D printers to construct schools, and it's a hybrid design. So there are 3D printed walls and then locally sourced materials for the rough door windows. And that was an intentional design choice. So we're blending old and new and still being able to train local workers on how they can operate the printer and doing technology transfer that way. In terms of how it works on the ground, we have a combination of teams that come together based around the world, but primarily in Madagascar itself. So we have the local construction workers and engineers and then the architects and then, of course, the technology partner. So I guess it's more cost effective to make these architectural scale 3D models. And so how does that compare face wood and nails and like that. So the main advantages would be the speed. So the first school we had built, the total print time was about 18 hours. And then the roof door windows took maybe about 12 days. So I think that is the main advantage there. But in terms of costs, I do want to be transparent. I do think it's probably overall more expensive than traditional mud and brick buildings, just because we are bringing together things that involve transportation at the moment. But the cost savings will be seen later on, like when you can achieve economies of scale and you're printing dozens or multiple of these hut structures all in one construction period. Yes, economies of scale, because I believe you're embarking on a second wave of building. And so that must be gratifying to see, oh, it's, now it's working and now we can replicate this. Exactly. That's what we're planning and currently in development for the Honeycomb campus, which will be once completed eight huts on about an acre of land on the west coast of Madagascar. And I do think it's interesting to see people's excitement about the potential of it, because I think Often you just don't really see technology solutions being applied in a nonprofit business model. It's usually seen when people are doing venture capital because there's just a higher return on investment. And another hidden resource, which is important, is teachers themselves and finding the good teachers, keeping them motivated, whatever challenges they face. 
teaching models or what's important in Madagascar would vary widely from what we have in the West. So what were some of those observations? So for that, we're largely involved in the development and project management and community relationships. The supply of teachers and the daily operations and the management of the school are done by local partners. But from that, we have understood the other challenges pertaining to overcrowding and long travel distances to the nearest school. Generally, there are people there who want to teach and students that want to go to school, but the existing infrastructure is either just not there or extremely overcrowded. So they can't take on additional enrollment and that's what prevents them from attending school. You know, we reflect on it a lot because we're an educational initiative and I think it's time for a reappraisal. There's criticism towards the testing models that we have in different countries. And really re-examining what is intelligence. So much in the West is about memorizing things, but very little is a pay to adaptive intelligence, which seems to be a real priority all around the world, but particularly in developing countries where it is a matter of survival. Oh, that's such a good point. I definitely observe that in university where you see maybe multiple choice tests rather than critical thinking usage. But you're exactly right in developing countries such as Madagascar. It's a matter of not even having the basic education skills like literacy and mathematics to then be able to advance beyond the initial origin village to pursue greater opportunities. Exactly. And it's about survival or resource management. I mean, they're feeling the brunt in Madagascar and beyond of climate change first and the deepest effects. And so within your thinking huts or educational models employed within those thinking huts, how are you helping pass on adaptive intelligence, making them climate literate? I think how I approach the climate situation is that education is at the root of it. So If they have the basic knowledge, they can then address those problems later on. And that's how we'll have long-term solutions. Because I do find that sometimes if people are not aware of the problems, then they're probably not going to be able to address it later on or really know what's happening. Exactly. And traditionally, half of the population in certain countries did not have access to women. If women are educated, then they wouldn't have as many children because they're motivated to to continue with school and achieve. And so how are they part of the Thinking Hut model? So with Thinking Huts, we are trying to be inclusive of both boys and girls. In Madagascar, I do think there are less cultural barriers that I have observed to other countries that may not be as accepting. Where I come from in China, there is more of a preference to males rather than females with children. But in Madagascar, we're trying to support that empowerment so that they don't have to get married very young. Because it's definitely normal in certain villages without access to the education to then be married as young as 15. Like when I had first started with Thinking Huts, just seeing that parallel there. And then not being able to go beyond that because of the financial dependence on someone. And so tell us a little bit about your observations of the Chinese educational model, what you appreciate about it and what what your experience in the West. So I did not go to school in China, but I do have an understanding of the culture. So a lot of girls are often sent to the orphanages because it's no longer in place, but the one child policy. So they would prefer the male so they could carry on the family name. So that's why most people who are adopted from China tend to be female. But I think my experiences in the U.S. on education just opened my eyes to how people just don't have access to 
even that, and even the differences between private and public school in the U.S., I think was interesting to see and how people value that and take it for granted, I would say. They just don't see maybe how lucky they are to have these opportunities and be able to go to building and have access to even free resources like internet. Yeah, so much of education is giving people the basis and the tools to educate themselves. And so why did you choose Madagascar? There's so many countries that are in need, but why was that particularly suited or ready for the thinking hut model? So with Madagascar, I was largely drawn to the people and I understood the international development component of it being so important where you would be doing all of your work. You need to be accepted by the local people in that they need to be understanding and also supportive of where it could go long term. And we found the most excitement and a huge warm welcome from the communities we approached there. And I think that really needs to be in place for any type of international development project because it won't be successful long term if you don't get the local buy-in in order to carry out such a large scale initiative. So I was wanting to ask about the differences in what you've noticed in curriculum values between U.S. and Madagascar or other countries globally. So what kind of educational goals does the U.S. have versus other countries? And how would you think about comparing those? That's a really good question. I would start with the general impressions I've gotten and how that ties into the curriculum. So I would say in the U.S., people are more focused on grades and standardized test scores and then how much money they could make after graduation. At least from my experience going to university, I was a business major. So a lot of people wanted to go into banking, venture capital, those type of consulting jobs where they would be guaranteed a stable income. Whereas in Madagascar, they're just really wanting to learn English and how they can go to higher education oftentimes in France or other European countries. So I find it interesting, the different values placed in what people are aspiring towards. And then on the younger age range, I remember we were asking the prospective students for this next Honeycomb campus that would be serving them. What they are aspiring to be is like a truck driver and then laborers and working in the rice fields and things like that. So just the level of aspiration, I would say, is the main difference. In the U.S., you may find people when they're younger aspire to be a doctor or an astronaut or a Hollywood actress. I think that would be the main difference to call out. And so you were saying some of the graduates from Madagascar think about going to college in France. How do you think these schools can go about inspiring the students to reach higher with their goals or if they necessarily need to in helping bring up the level of education in Madagascar? I think a lot of that may actually come to representation and seeing role models because we have quite a few here in the U.S. That's how people are like, oh, I want to be that person. And then they see that in the media and there's just not as many in Madagascar because I believe it may be the fourth or fifth poorest country in the world. And when you do not see that representation or opportunity, then that's something that will hinder you because you don't think it's possible to attain. Yeah, of course. I don't know what percentage of the jobs available in Madagascar are very different sustenance-based as opposed to these aspirations. But yeah, tell us how it breaks down and how you address these needs that may be less aspirational and more basic 
ones of survival. Yes. So the majority, from my knowledge, is within agriculture. So within rice or mines. And that's why in the future, we're trying to focus more so in rural areas where the next Honeycomb campus would be, for example, because those are the kids that tend to get left behind because they're walking multiple hours and miles to even get to school. And so there just needs to be more investment there. I think even if there's still a need for infrastructure and more urban areas still in Madagascar, I think we just have to go where the greatest need is. And it's kind of heartbreaking when you know that there's so many bright, intelligent people, but they go undiscovered because they might be dealing with just basic things like will their family have access to water? And that would be the thing like a lot of young women providing that so they can't go to school because they have to walk miles to get to the clean water source. We have the privilege of not experiencing that. So how are you addressing that or how are you addressing some of those basic needs that they might have on the ground in Madagascar then, that then frees up young people to focus on their education rather than providing those basic things for their family? So we are a holistic solution. So we're bringing the main infrastructure there. So not only the school buildings, but we're building the water well, the toilets, bringing the internet there. So we are making sure those basic needs are met to then have as a starting place, then expand from. And it's so exciting. I mean, at the one hand, we know from the mistakes that we've made in the West from being reliant on fossil fuels and having all these infrastructures that we now have to replace. But I guess that the opportunity in these countries, which are so sunlight most of the year, they can be building from the ground up. And in some ways, you just have clean energy free from the sun. So are you in involved in some of that? Because that's an exciting area that we all want to be involved in. And it's nice that when, when there's no choice, they can go clean and it's cheaper in the end than these other sources of energy. Of course, that's also a good point to bring up Madagascar. And that was another technical component that went into the decision to begin with them. And the main energy source that we're trying to incorporate is solar because I believe, especially where we're working on the west coast of Madagascar, it just receives a lot more sunshine per year. So it would allow us to really incorporate that and make it more sustainable. But I think for that too, it's a matter of how are we going to sustain the electricity as well because that infrastructure is quite difficult too. So we need to see how would that be supported on a larger scale, especially if we're trying to reach more rural areas. And on the level of this wonderful initiative that you're bringing to Madagascar, what have you and your team been learning in terms of the intergenerational knowledge or the systems of kinship? What can we learn, in fact, that we might have forgotten with our industrialized societies? That's a really good question. I think maybe what we've learned is how important family and community is. What I noticed in Madagascar is how really genuinely happy they are, despite not having a lot in life. And we have so many material possessions here in the U.S. And not to say that's all bad if people want to pursue that, but I just definitely noticed how it wasn't so much about what you have, but who you are as a person. And I think that is something that's really stuck with me. And also, do you have any specific experiences with the students or the teachers or the people in Madagascar that have touched you or inspired you or just that you'd like to relate? Yeah, that's my favorite part, just thinking back. So I'll pick a couple. I remember I had met a father named Herman, and he was telling me how inspiring it was, this initiative, and that they were really proud to be the first country to receive this 3D printed school, and that it would inspire his children to then achieve more in life. 
too. Another one would be maybe not so much conversation exchange, but I had visited a village and I was taking photos. And this one child was sort of imitating me taking the photo. And I just thought it was really adorable. The last memory I have is with the construction team. Even though it was quite challenging with the language barriers, they are always so nice and they would wave at me whenever I would come on the site. And I think those would be the main things that I tend to reflect upon. And so since you're not stressing so much, you know, testing-based education models. How are you finding out people's aptitudes? I mean, there's many ways, and I'm critical of the testing model. It's one way, but there's other ways to find out what people's skills are. And the other advantage I would imagine in Madagascar is that people are prepared for hardship, whereas we are often very pampered, like we don't really know how to thrive in times of uncertainty. And But they have this kind of, wow, if we don't apply ourselves, we're not going to survive. We'll lose our farm. We'll lose our resources. So how are you finding, how are you te testing those skills if you're not doing traditional tests? We, I would say we're trying to empower a way where they have different choices. So we're not really tracking, oh, this person became a doctor. It's more, okay, this person, if they have more choices, they no longer have to then get married so young. They can go and do another type of job. And maybe that is also a manual labor type of opportunity, but it wouldn't be another option that wouldn't enable them to then advance in life. Because I do think if you get them beyond those barriers, then they are not prevented from achieving other opportunities in life. So I think that is where our work is mainly occurring. Speaking of you were saying you were taking some photos, I was looking through the photos on the website and there's a lot of very touching photos. But I also heard that you started out before you started actually building by doing a thing called Think Boxes, where you sent educational supplies to people. Could you talk a little about that and where you were doing it and what you saw and its effects. Yeah, so I did that while I was in high school, while the technology was still developing to then realize the full vision with the huts. And we primarily sent those care packages to the Dominican Republic in Guatemala. So I worked through the mission trips that my school had planned each year. But I realized from that experience that I wanted to be more community focused and try to limit anything coming from foreign countries. So that's why I think that's really shaped my whole supply chain operation strategy for how do we bring these resources and construct the schools on site in Madagascar because ideally we just want to be importing the printer and the equipment and then everything else is local. And speaking about, you're talking about realizing your full vision, there's a fuel that, I mean, I know we're a nonprofit. What's the fuel that keeps this running? And part of that is fundraising or just how do you energize people to get behind you? As a young person to be taken seriously, this vision started when you were in high school, your ambition, the seeds of it. So, you know, how do you get that or successful strategies? Who are your mentors along the road? Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. I do think it is quite challenging being young especially operating in male-dominated industries across construction, architecture, and technology. It's definitely a learning experience, but I do think people tend to respect you more as you prove your capabilities and competence because it definitely didn't happen overnight for me. And 
it's something I still try to navigate now. So it's not going to be going away overnight. But in terms of fundraising, primarily individuals, I would say I am set apart in a certain way from other charities in that we do value who we're accepting money from. And maybe that means like we're not going to be raising to the extent of a UNICEF, for example, but we do understand how it is important and that does influence the organization itself, like the people who are giving the funds. Um, and then in terms of mentors along the way, I would say a huge part of it was my parents and my dad just telling me that I could do it because that is a huge inhibitor if people are told that you can't do something younger and then they'll just never try. Yes. And I understand the courage that it takes both. It's like being a woman and also being you know, Asian. I mean, there's certain biases against who are the perceived leaders. There's a level of confidence, but not perceived as being apt for leadership roles. And this is just something that we have to deal with people's preconceptions. I don't know if you encounter that or you just look beyond it, but it can be challenging because one has to be firm and bold and lead by almost like following behind, appearing not to lead. There's so many strategies. So what are some of your strategies and how did you move past the challenges? Mm -hmm. I can definitely relate to all of the things you said there. I think being a young Asian woman and trying to lead people can be difficult in the sense that they have those assumptions in place. I do think the typical archetype of Asian women is that you're supposed to be quiet and maybe those aren't going to be perceived leadership qualities. But in terms of what I have done to overcome that, I really focused on building the trust and showing people that I genuinely care about them and valuing long-term relationships, especially in the business side. So with the construction team, just showing them that I'll stand up for them if I see behavior that's not okay in my perception. And just being like a good person with ethics, I think is maybe what sets me apart because then people respect that and they'll follow you. And I think that is how I've approached it, just not trying to fit in. And it takes longer to be taken seriously, but you'll weed out the people that aren't the best fit on the team and you'll really value and hold high standards to who you want to work with. Exactly, because none of us do it alone. We all do it as a team. And so as you reflect on the future and education, the challenges we face and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I would want them to know that anything is possible. You just need to persevere and that they can have such a huge ripple effect in not only one person's lives, but anybody, whether that's a community or the whole world on a global scale, I wouldn't want people to feel discouraged because I think there's definitely moments along the way of that and people will just not want to try to do that because people around them may say it's not possible. But if you keep going, then it will eventually come to life. Yes, indeed. That ripple effect is so important. And we never truly know. And I think that what you've highlighted with your project as well is the importance of knowledge, yes, but also this importance of wisdom, that knowledge that you put to good use in the world. And it's not just about making money, as you say, some people are motivated for that after graduation, but it's really what you leave behind. And you are doing that. It's not over. Of course, you're very young. And so we really look forward to your continuation of Thinking Huts in different countries or throughout Madagascar. So thank you, Maggie Grout, for sharing your journey, which shows when you believe in something larger than yourself and 
follow through on your ideas, that path can make a real difference in people's lives and help us achieve our collective potential. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Well, thank you so much for having me. Maggie Grout's approach to humanitarian aid provides a hopeful outlook for the future. Her emphasis on involving the community in Madagascar really struck me, and in my view, it makes for the beginnings of a much more sustainable solution to global poverty. She cites education as the root of empowerment, something that is needed to help children learn the skills and independence to make their own choices in life and inspire them to go on to build a better life for future generations. My freshman year of college, I took a class focusing on international aid organizations, and one problem we discussed was the fact that foreign aid can economically stunt a country if it doesn't work to create the infrastructure needed for the community to succeed independently. What Maggie is doing is something that will give generations of people the resources to help their own country thrive. Another aspect of this is the way she involves the community every step of the way. She chose Madagascar because of the people's enthusiasm for the project. She uses local materials for those parts of the school which aren't 3D printed. She uses local construction teams and curriculum experts, and she trains local workers to operate the 3D printing technology. This matters because often, international aid organizations don't do enough to consult and involve the community they are seeking to aid, and in doing so, they misjudge the true needs of the community. In these ways, Thinking Huts is doing many important things right, providing an optimistic vision for the future of international aid organizations, and also a hopeful outlook for the next generations in Madagascar. From a leadership standpoint, I really valued Maggie's perspective on the challenges of being a young Asian woman in a leadership role. As a young woman myself, I can relate to the difficulty of earning respect in male-dominated industries. For me, that was coaching on a men's high school soccer team. Maggie is leading on a much larger scale. I really admire how she proves her competence to those who work with her simply by genuinely caring and letting them see that. Also, as an aspiring teacher, I find Maggie's project to be especially important. I love the advice she gives to future generations on perseverance and the power of self-belief. With Thinking Huts, she's helping provide opportunities for many kids to dream bigger and live better lives. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Claire Tolliver with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews produced on this episode was Claire Tolliver. Digital media coordinator was Sam Myers. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening. Thank you.